Good evening, everyone. Very warm welcome to our fourth Bible lecture, this evening's Bible lecture, looking at Leviticus. Very excited for what we're going to see together in the Scriptures over the next hour. Let's pray as we start, shall we? Our Lord, our King, we thank you for your gift to us of the Scriptures. We thank you that your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And we pray tonight as we expound your word, as we share it, as we dwell in it, as we seek to, to look into the depths of your word and see what it is that you have to say to us. We pray, Lord, that your word would speak to our hearts that you'd lift our eyes to see your son, Jesus, that you'd warm our hearts with the good news of your gospel and that you would help us tonight to fall even more in love with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Leviticus, I know that I hope that you're as excited as I am because Leviticus is the center point. Um, it is the crux, and I mean that pun intentionally. It's the climax of the Old Testament, as far as I'm concerned. Leviticus is one of the most mind blowing books in the whole Bible. And the tragedy is that some very strange people managed to find it boring. Isn't that a tragedy? And, and the reason is that Leviticus is so rich, it's so intoxicatingly gospel-centered that it's just too rich for most people. It's like a double shot of espresso when you've never had coffee before. It's like a really fine brandy when all you've had is weak beer. It's like going from red, that horrible red um, cap milk stuff to the full cream. That's what Leviticus is. And it's the, the sheer detail with which Leviticus exalts in the gospel that puts people off. So the, the tragedy of Leviticus, I, I mean it as no joke, though it's ironic, is it not? Because people genuinely do find this book boring because they, find, they get lost in the detail that is the richness with which Leviticus is actually wanting us to exult in the good news of the gospel of grace. That's what's going on in this book. And so tonight we're just going to try, start to try to acquire the taste to, to dip under the covers, to see what it is that is going on in this most misunderstood of books of the Old Testament. Because Leviticus is probably the most cross-centered book in the whole Bible, more than Romans. The detail with which Leviticus shows us what Jesus did on the cross, no other book comes close. New Testament gives us Words or phrases, says Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Doesn't tell us what that means. Says Jesus is a sin offering for, our, for the atonement. Doesn't tell us what that means. It's Leviticus that helps us understand what it means to be saved. Without Leviticus, we, we wouldn't be able to understand half of what Jesus has done for us. And, and the whole of Leviticus is an answer to one question. Uh, and the question is, how can we as a, as a sinful people ever approach or be in relationship with a holy God? It's the question that, that drives Leviticus, and it's a live question for us. I Just ask yourself now, how does God feel about me right now? Or ask it the other way, how do I feel right now about my relationship with God? When I look up to God, what are the emotions that come? 
Because if there is even a hint of uncertainty, even a hint of guilt or shame, even a a hint of doubt about how God might look to us, Leviticus is the book for us. And it's the same question that the Israelites were facing too. Because as we pick up this part of the Pentateuch, God's chosen the people of Israel. He's rescued them from Egypt so that they might be his people and worship him. He's given them the Ten Commandments. And he's shown them, as Gareth showed us looking at Exodus, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, this place where God is going to choose to dwell in the middle of his people so that they might be a people who live with the living God. But the people seem incapable of living with God in their midst. They're constantly grumbling, complaining, rebelling, doubting, and profaning God's holiness among them. And as a result, they're constantly in danger of being destroyed for their sin because God's presence, God's holiness, the best way of thinking about it is it's like the sun. It's good. It's the source of all life. But if we get too close, we get burnt up. It's the sheer holiness, the sheer goodness of God that makes it impossible for us as weak and broken as we are to come closer. How can a sinful people ever live with a holy God? It's the problem the people of Israel have got because the holy God's right there among them. And it's the same for us. It's, it's just a question of salvation. It's the whole point, isn't it? How can you and I know God, our creator? How could that ever be? How can we be sure when we die that we will be with him forever and not cast out far from him? Because we don't deserve to be with him forever. How can we be confident? And in the New Testament, we're told that the answer is Jesus' death on the cross. But only in Leviticus, we give him the categories. Uh, we walked through in beautiful detail what it means for Jesus to have died for you and for me. Uh, and over the last few weeks, we followed the story to get to this point, the story of Genesis, how God made a good world and put Adam and Eve in the garden to walk with him and to know God perfectly. We've seen how Adam and Eve chose to take the fruit, rebelled against God, broke that perfect relationship. Seen all of the mess of human poor decisions walked through in the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. Seen how ultimately the Israelites end up in slavery in, in Egypt and God uses Moses to rescue them to make them his people, to take them into the wilderness where they could worship him and ultimately that he might live with them. Leviticus 26 says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will put my dwelling place among you. But the Israelites, they they build a golden calf and they worship an idol. They go and scout out the land and they choose to run away from God's promises. They grumble and complain and even almost overthrow Moses, who God's given them to lead them towards him. And so as we pick up the book of Leviticus, we're still in the middle of the desert of Sinai. The Israelites are not yet in the promised land. And all of Leviticus is what God speaks to Moses while he's in the tent of meeting, while he's meeting with God. And so unlike the other four books of the Pentateuch, it's not narrative. It's not a story. It's an instruction manual. It's instructions for how a sinful people can live with a holy God. And it's probably that genre that causes us some trouble because as an instruction manual, reading it, just the words, it doesn't do us much good. We've got to visualize it. Um, It's describing stuff that we actually do. So we need image. We need to use our imaginations to get into it. 
Uh, and even harder because it's an instruction manual that was never truly followed. The Israelites never put into practice all of the instructions God gave them in Leviticus. It's kind of a utopian ideal what it would look like for a people to live with the Lord in the purity of holiness that, the, that in, a, in the history of Israel they never actually followed through with. But it shows us how we can, you and I today, enjoy a relationship with a holy God, experience his presence and his goodness in our lives even faced with the reality of our sin. That's what Leviticus is all about. And so the, the, the one central theme to the whole book is God's holiness. God's holiness. Leviticus 20, 26 says, Be holy as I am holy. Uh, and God's holiness means his pure and his powerful presence. And the idea is that if God's people are going to be close to such a holy God, they've got to be holy too. That simple. We can't have a sinful people next to a holy God or they'll be burnt up by the, by the brightness of his splendor. And so the tent of meeting is a replica of the heavenly tabernacle where the Lord dwells. The idea is that God is in heaven, in his dwelling place, in his temple. And he tells the Israelites to make a copy of that tabernacle. And he shows them a pattern. He shows Moses the pattern on the mountain. We saw that in Exodus 25, verses 8 and 9. And so the Israelites have made this tent to the specifications God has given them. And God's choosing to make his presence felt, his presence manifest in this place. God's holiness shown in the Israelite camp so that they could know him. And then most of Leviticus is ritual. Uh, So it's a visual book. We can't read the instructions. We've just got to try and picture what it is that the Israelites are meant to do. Uh, And the reason that it's ritual is that we're in a pre-literate culture here. We're in a non-book culture. So the way that you embed values in a culture is by doing stuff. It's why our churches, old churches, have got stained glass windows to give visual fixes for a pre-literate culture when the churches were built to help people to understand the stories of the Bible. Um, And so Leviticus is kind of like a school of the gospel in Israelite society. It's giving pictures that could soak in at a subconscious level to help people to understand how they might relate to God. Uh, we, We do this not very much, so we've got to move our minds a bit. We do it on Remembrance Day when we stand in silence for a minute or two. That's a ritual. We do it on Christmas Day when we give presents. Uh, And what those those rituals, those traditions do is they communicate values honoring the fallen soldiers in Remembrance Day, um, celebrating life together and generosity and giving presents at Christmas. And they they embed those values in our culture and they communicate values to to kids growing up, understand what Christmas is about because we give presents. It's what Leviticus is trying to do. And the, the rationale behind lots of the rituals as we dig in in a second to walk through the book, it's all about association with death and life. The idea is that um, God's presence is perfect life. To, not, to be with God is to live. And to be separate from God is to be dead. And so in Leviticus, all of the rituals are kind of trying to act out this idea that knowing God is true life and being separated from God is true death. And so we've got to get away from the stuff that represents death and we've got to do the stuff that looks like life. And if we're going to be close to God, then we've got to be in this kind of fort world, this image world of living things. Uh, So, for example, um, one of the strongest correlations is blood, blood representing life, an animal's life, uh, an animal's blood or a human's blood representing their their whole life, their existence. So shedding an animal's blood is is an expression, a picture, a metaphor of giving its whole life away. And that's where sacrifice comes from. 
but we'll see that in a bit more detail as we walk through the book. Uh, and here's the structure. Leviticus chapter 16 is probably the most famous bit. Uh, it's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, um, where the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and where they sacrifices the scapegoat. We'll come to that in a bit. The, the Day of Atonement is at the very centre of the book, and the whole of the book is kind of mirroring itself to point towards what's going on on that Day of Atonement. So we start off in chapters 1 to 7 with rituals, and specifically we get lots of sacrifices. Chapters 1 to 7, loads of sacrifices. Then in chapters 8 to 10, we look at the priests, and it's specifically their ordination. Um, and then in 11 to 15, a load of laws, particularly about being clean and unclean. Don't eat lobsters, do eat sheep, that kind of thing. Um, then chapter 16, the centre, Day of Atonement. And then the, the mirror reverses. Some more laws, but these are more kind of moral laws rather than ritual. Um, don't sleep with that person, be kind to that person, those kind of laws. And then 21 to 22, we go back to the priests, but this time it's kind of standards for the priests to live by. And finally, in 23 to 27, more rituals, this time festivals and celebrations. And the whole thing is pointing to what's going on at the Day of Atonement. But we're going to walk through and see how each one of these categories, first the rituals, then the priests, then the laws, then the Day of Atonement, they are all pictures of what it means to be saved. How we can approach a perfect God by his grace and his grace alone. And so all of the answers that Leviticus offers, rituals, sacrifice, priests, laws, Day of Atonement, they're arrows pointing directly to Jesus. That's what we're going to see as we look through, the, through this in detail. Because Jesus is the sacrifice whose blood makes atonement in Leviticus 1-7. to Jesus is the high priest who's worthy to approach God, the priests in 8-10. to Jesus is the one who pronounces people clean in the cleanliness laws, 11-15. Jesus is the scapegoat who carries away our sin on the day of atonement. Jesus is the one who alone fulfills God's holy law. Uh, and this whole second half of Leviticus is grouped together, and it's called the Holiness Code, because the, the 10 chapters from Leviticus 17 to 27, the focus shifts basically to what it looks like to be holy. The first half is kind of how we can become holy, how we can approach God, and the second half is kind of how we should behave if we are holy, a description of what a holy people would look like, less how we become it and more how we can act it out. And I've put there on the handout Hebrews chapter 8 where we have this picture using all of the categories Hebrews you can guess by the title it's written to the Jewish Christians and the book of Hebrews more than any other book in the New Testament is picking up on all the categories that Leviticus gives us and it's showing us how Jesus fulfills them so I've, there's quite a few quotes from Hebrews as we go through because it's what draws the line from what's going on in Leviticus to how it points to Jesus um, the final bit of interpretation to say before we kind of start moving through the chapters um, is the, the whole question of law in Leviticus. Most of Leviticus is laws. The whole second half is different kinds of laws or standards or rituals. Um, and Christians have often distinguished between the ritual and the moral law in Leviticus. Um, so the first half is more ritual, stuff we should be doing like um, priests offering sacrifices, ordination services, that kind of thing. Um, second ha half is much more commands. Um, and as we'll see when we come to that a bit later, uh, they're both fulfilled in different ways by what Jesus came to do. So, are we ready? That's enough orientation. Let's dive into Leviticus chapters 1 to 7, and let's see what is going on in these first seven chapters, which are all about sacrifice. Um, I'm just going to give a whistle-stop tour through the seven before we dive in to see a couple of key parts to each one. So, um... Basically, there are five kinds of sacrifice. They're there in front of us. Burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, guilt offering. 
Um, so chapter one, we've got the burnt offering. Chapter two, we've got the grain offering. Chapter three, the fellowship offering. Chapter four, the sin offering. Um, and then chapter five, the guilt offering. You can see the headings in the Bible. And the first six chapters of Leviticus are going through those offerings from a normal person's perspective, from the normal Israelite coming to bring their sacrifice. And then chapters six and seven go through the same offerings again in the same order, but this time from the priest's perspective, letting the priest know what he's got to do. And the whole point is they're illustrations of what needs to happen to give these sacrifices to God. Uh, Here we've got a picture of the altar that was outside the tabernacle where the sacrifices were made. So Leviticus chapter one um, and verse two, or from verse one, and let's see what God says. The Lord called to Moses and he spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering, so our first kind, from the herd you are to offer a male without defect. You've got to offer God the best. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so it will be acceptable to the Lord. So Israelite brings his animal, his best animal, to the front of the tent to where this um, altar is. You are to lay your your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And then in the next few verses, basically, they then burn the whole thing, and the whole thing's burnt, so they call it a burnt offering. Quite an easy, easy title. So what's going on? Israelite brings the animal. He lays his hand on its head, And what he's saying is, I'm identifying with this animal. Instead of me dying for my sin, let this animal die in my place. Instead of my blood being spilt, let its blood be spilt in my place. And verse 3 says, uh, so it's acceptable to the Lord. And then verse 4, it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. The Israelites are coming before a holy God, they're to die for their sin, but they identify with an animal and say, let this animal die in my place. Hopefully that's raising a question for you, but we'll come, back, we'll come to that in about two minutes. Because what I want us to see first is that all of the offerings are actually building towards the fellowship offering. So the first one, the burnt offering, the, the, the reason for it is basically to underscore a prayer. So I'm coming to God and I'm asking him for something, but before I can get into his presence, I've got to pay for my sin. So I come before God and I sacrifice the burnt offering and it all gets burnt up and so my sin's forgiven so I can now pray to God. That's the idea. Um, The grain offering's the same. It's all burnt up. It's just it's flour rather than an animal. So the burnt offering and the grain offering doing the same kind of thing. They're consumed by the fire to make a general atonement so that I can then pray to God. That's what it's doing. The sin offering and the guilt offering in chapters four and five are a more kind of specific forgiveness. So I've done something particular and I've done something wrong and I want to be forgiven of this particular sin. So I bring either a sin offering or a guilt offering. And they're both the same kind of thing. They're just using different metaphors for what's going on. So in both cases, I bring this animal, perfect animal, I put my hand on its head, I identify with it, it's burnt up. It's not all burnt because some of it is eaten. And the metaphor in the, in the sin offering is one of purification. That I'm sacrificing the animal and the blood is going to purify me. I'm going to be washed clean by the blood of the animal. That's the picture in sin offering. And in guilt offering, it's more of a kind of a restitution um, image. And so it's always this particular, it's a ram. And the idea is I've done something wrong, so I've got to pay the ransom. I've got to pay the penalty, pay the price for the thing I've done. 
and instead of paying the full price, I'm going to give this as restitution to make good. So sin and guilt offering, both to be forgiven, different metaphors, but to be forgiven for a particular sin. And the point of all of them, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, is so that you can come into God's presence. That's why they're there. But the fellowship offering is completely different. Read with me from chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, about the fellowship offering. If your offering is a fellowship offering and you offer an animal from the herd, whether male or female, you're to present before the Lord an animal without defect. You're to lay your hand on the head of your offering and slaughter it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Aaron's sons, the priest, shall splash the blood against the sides of the altar. From the fellowship offering, you are to bring a food offering to the Lord, the internal organs and all the fat that is connected to them, both kidneys with the fat on them near the loins and the long lobe of the liver, which you will remove with the kidneys. What it's saying is that with a fellowship offering, what you're giving to God, you're giving him the best bits. With a fellowship offering, you're giving him the fat. You're not just giving him the lean stuff. You're giving him the best. You're giving him the inward parts, the kidneys. And we would say they're the heart, what the heart kind of represents in our culture, the place of emotions. The kidneys are doing in ancient Israelite culture. We're giving him the inner bits. And the reason we see, if we turn to chapter 7 and read more about the fellowship offering, why would you offer a fellowship offering? Chapter 7 and verse 12. We might offer it as an expression of thankfulness. Or verse 16, we might offer it as a result of a vow or just as a free will offering, just because we want to. And so the point of a fellowship offering is to enjoy a meal with the Lord. That's what's going on. You don't have to bring one. But if you're really grateful to God, you might come and sacrifice this animal and then you sit in, you sit in God's presence and you eat this feast. You celebrate with him. It was quite rare to kill an animal, quite rare to celebrate by eating meat together. Um, and you normally only sacrifice an animal like this if you're going to have a feast. You get it in the prodigal son where they kill the fatted calf. Um, you get it in Genesis chapter 18 where the three men appear to Abraham and he runs to kill an animal to come and celebrate with them. You're, you're having a feast together. And so the, the image of the fellowship offering is celebrating, serving a really extravagant meal to an honoured guest. You're coming before the Lord just because you love him, just because you want to spend time in his presence and you're eating with him this fellowship offering, the best bits, giving him the inner bits, giving him the fat, giving him the heart to enjoy being in the presence of God. And so all the other offerings are building to that. The point is to be in the presence of God, enjoying him. That's what's going on in the offerings. And what these are doing in this ritual kind of school of the gospel in Israelite culture is they're teaching the Israelites from a really young age that sin has to be paid for, that the price of sin is death, that the consequence of our rebellion and walking away from God is a spiritual death of being separated from God, and that in order to be wiped out, in order to be washed clean, the price is death. But what the Israelites get to do is instead of dying themselves, they get to spill the blood of an animal. And it raises a question, what possible use is the blood of an animal. In what, in what sense do, can a blood of an animal actually wash clean my sin? It's, it's a bit arbitrary. And I, I see the symbolism, but where's the actual link? It doesn't seem to work in my head. And that's underlined, if you look at Leviticus 5, where there are some regulations for the sin offering. And basically the sin offering is meant to be a lamb. That's the best. That's the perfect sin offering for forgiveness. See in verse 7, it says, chapter 5, verse 7, anyone who can't afford a lamb is to bring two doves. So if you can't afford a lamb, you can bring two doves. That's, that's kind, isn't it? And then the dove's blood will wash away the sin. 
But then verse 11. If, however, they can't afford two doves or two young pigeons, they're to bring us an offering for their sin, a tenth of an ephah of the finest flour. Now, there's a problem there. Because if you were to read Leviticus chapter 17, 11, you've got it spelled out loud and clear. Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Right? That's the whole point of the sacrificial system. I'm meant to die for my sin. I lay my head on the animal. I identify with it. It dies in my place. Its blood is spilt instead of my blood. I'm washed clean by its blood so I can be in God's presence. And now God is being kind to poor Israelites. He's saying, if you can't afford it, you can offer some flour. But where's the blood? It actually undermines the whole point of the sacrificial system. And this is the whole point. This is the glorious thing about Leviticus. You see, at a human level, Leviticus and the whole of the Mosaic law and the whole of the Old Testament is incoherent. Right? There's a tension here. We're only washed clean by blood. You've got to sacrifice an animal. But flour will do if you don't have any. It's incoherent. And those inconsistencies the whole way through the Bible. Um, if you read the Old Testament, are God's people just Israel or are God's people all the Gentiles too? Some places say one thing, some say the other. If you read the Old Testament, is God's covenant, God's agreement with humanity, is it unconditional, just grace? Or is it conditional? Do you have to do some stuff to stay in? Bits seem to say both. It's, it's inconsistent. There are all of these inconsistencies in the Old Testament at a human level. And the reason is that God, who inspired the human office of the Old Testament, wanted this book not to be complete in itself, but to point to something greater. And all of the inconsistencies that we see within the words of the Torah and the Mosaic law in the Old Testament are resolved in Jesus. Is God's covenant with man conditional or unconditional? Well, well both, because it's unconditionally, it's, it's conditional on good behavior, but that behavior is met in Jesus, so we receive it unconditionally. Are God's people the Jews or the Gentiles? Well, in Jesus, both are made one. Is sacrifice, how can flat, if sacrifice is blood washing clean our sin, but flour can do it, how does that work? Well, it's because the blood was never meant to be the animal's blood. The blood is Jesus's blood. We've got that spelled out in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4. Hebrews 10, 4 says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Obvious, isn't it? What, what actual good does killing an animal do? The whole point of all of the sacrificial system was that these animals were a picture of the one who truly had to die to reconcile God and man. You and I are forgiven and we approach God through Jesus' blood, which washes clean our sins. And the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is to embed the idea of sacrifice, how it works. But it's not actually the blood of a sheep that's paying for my sin. It's Jesus' blood shed for me on the cross that washes away my sin. And the animal's blood is a picture to help me understand what's going on there. And that's why even the flower, the seeming inconsistency in chapter 5 and verse 11, is itself the thing that points to Jesus. So in Leviticus 1 to 7, the Israelites are given sacrifices to wash away their sins. But it's not the sacrifice that actually does it. It's a sacrifice that is a symbol of the one great sacrifice that Jesus would make on the cross. Hebrews 9 says, Jesus did not enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with his blood. But he appeared once for all to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Ultimately, God himself is the sacrifice that washes clean our sin. 
Um, and the New Testament talks repeatedly about Jesus as a sin offering, specifically Romans 8, chapter 3, 1 John 2, 2. Jesus is described as the sin offering, the lamb, the perfect and pure lamb who is identified with us and dies in our place. But he actually could because he alone was fully God and fully man. And so he washes away our sin. It's the first picture of the gospel in Leviticus, sacrifice. Second one, and we go a bit more quickly from this point, is the priest's. And in Leviticus 8 to 10, we have basically the story of the priest's ordination. Um, it's nice to read this one because Abby and Gary and I were all ordained just this last week. I'm very glad to say that ours did not involve being drenched in the blood of a load of animals, um, though it did involve lots of very warm clothing on a hot day, which these guys would also have enjoyed. So chapter 8, we have the day one of the ordination. And what happens on, on day one of the ordination is Moses offers sacrifice for Aaron to purify Aaron the priest to make atonement for his sins so that Aaron can come in the presence of God. Um, and so Leviticus chapter 8 and verse 24. Um, where are we? Moses also brought Aaron's sons forward and he put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears, on the thumbs of their right hands, on the big toes of their right feet. Then he splashed the blood against the sides of the altar. Moses is making a sacrifice covering Aaron and his sons in the blood so that the Aaron and his sons might be forgiven for their sin and come to serve God and be in his presence. Then in chapter 9, having been purified by the sacrifices Moses makes, Aaron offers sacrifices for himself to complete his ordination. It's Leviticus chapter 9 and verse 23. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. So Aaron is purified and accepted by God as the priest who's going to come before God in the holy place and is going to make the atoning sacrifice for the people's sins. And Aaron offers the, his first sacrifice to God and God accepts it. And the people shout for joy because it means they're forgiven. They've purified these few... these small handful, these five men who God's accepted as representatives of the people to go into his holy place to make atonement for the people. And when the people see the offering accepted, they know they're forgiven because a priest has gone before them to ensure their forgiveness. So they're ecstatic. And then in chapter 10, two of Aaron's sons who've just been consecrated offer an unauthorized offering to the Lord against the laws that God had given them. And we read in Leviticus 10, Aaron's sons Nadab and Abihu took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense, and they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Because the whole point of Leviticus is to explain what it, how a sinful people can come into the presence of a holy God, and if we come before him in any way other than the one that he has allowed, just like coming too close to the sun, we're burnt up, by his holiness. Our sin cannot stand when it's in his presence. And so we have the success and the joy of chapter 9 as the priests are consecrated as God tells them to be. And then the fear of chapter 10 when people go and they treat God's command lightly. And we see that only through God's, uh, the, the God's approved sacrifices can the Israelites come into his presence. And so again, it's just creating a picture in the Israelites' um, culture in the, deep in the subconscious, that to be accepted before God, what we need is someone who's pure and holy, someone who's accepted by God, someone who can stand before the Lord because you and I can't, 
who can go into where the Lord is and make an offering on our behalf. And if the Lord accepts that offering, then we're okay. We need someone as a go-between. We need someone who can stand before the Lord. That's what the Old Testament priesthood is for. So when Jesus comes, the great high priest, again, Hebrews 7, such a great high priest truly meets our need, one who's holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. Two pictures so far of Jesus in Leviticus, a sacrifice that makes atonement for us, a priest who can go into where God is so that we might be accepted. Uh, And the third section, the third picture is clean and unclean. Um, And this is where it gets a bit confusing because it's a bit, it's so different from our culture. First thing to understand is that clean and unclean are ritual states, not moral ones. What, What that means is it's not sinful to be ritually unclean. It's not sinful to be ritually unclean. It's a ritual state, not a moral one. Um, So, for example, it's not sinful, it's not wrong to be wearing a swimming costume. But if you try to walk into Buckingham Palace or to a state dinner in a swimming costume, you might get in trouble because it's a question of what's appropriate. And in the same way, it's not wrong to be ritually unclean, but it is wrong to enter God's presence while ritually unclean. Um, It's quite like a ritual state. It's like being registered to vote. Um, If you're registered on the electoral roll of your area, you're not a better person than someone who's not. But you will find it a bit easier to get a mortgage, say, because being on the electoral roll is one of the markers that people use as a symbol of being reliable. It's not that actually being on the electoral roll has any difference to whether I'm a good person or not, but it does change the way that the access that I can have. And so ritual states, they're not sinful, but we can't enter God's presence while we're in an unclean state. And, and so ritual purity, it symbolizes moral purity. It points to moral purity, but it's not the same thing. And again, we've got this association with death and life. So all of the Israelites, therefore, and everything in creation falls into one of these three circles. And there's kind of a spectrum from being unclean ritually on one hand, and that's anything associated with death. So a carcass is ritually unclean. Um, if I've touched a dead body, I'm going to be ritually unclean. Um, If I've eaten an animal that's culturally associated with death, I'm going to be ritually unclean. All that kind of thing. Through to being clean, where I've purified myself from whatever has associated me with death. And then if I'm clean and I offer a sacrifice to wash away my sin, I might even be holy. And so the priests, once they've been ordained, are considered holy and they can come before God. And so the, the Israelites are always moving in this spectrum back and forth between clean and unclean and holy, depending on if I've touched a dead body, right, I'm richly unclean now, so I need to wash myself, and then I'm clean again, and then I might offer a sacrifice and I might be holy, but then um, I, eat, you know, I eat some lobster, so I'm back and I'm unclean. And the point is, not that it's right or wrong, but it's about showing respect to God, coming into God's presence, we've got to be purified to do so, that's the idea. Um, so things that symbolize death and make you unclean in chapters 11 to 15, um, eating the wrong kind of animals, chapter 11, um, emissions of blood or semen or bodily fluids, Leviticus 12 and 15, um, skin diseases like leprosy, Leviticus 13, and mold. Um, so this is more making a, a house or a piece of fabric unclean. You can see how all of those things are associated in some way with decay or death or rot, that kind of thing. Um, There's no consensus for exactly what makes some animals clean and some unclean. Um, Popular suggestions are it might be hygienic 
Um, it might be a cultural association with death. It might be animals that deviate from a norm of some kind. Some people have suggested it's where the animals are in the food chain or what their diet is. But the, the basic idea is some animals are associated with death in some way, so make you unclean. Some are associated with life in some way, and so appropriate to be sacrifices make you holy. And as a case study to see how, what any of this could possibly have to do with us or with how we relate to God, let's look at leprosy in Leviticus 13 and 14. So Leviticus chapter 13, we're talking about skin diseases. Um, and so from verse 2, when anyone has a swelling or a rash or a shiny spot on their skin that may be a defiling skin disease that would make them unclean, they must be brought to Aaron the priest or one of his sons who's a priest. The priest is to examine the sore on the skin, and if the hair in the sore has turned white and the sore appears to be more than skin deep, it is a defiling skin disease. That's the key. More than skin deep. And when the priest examines that person, he shall pronounce them ceremonial unclean. Because what's going on here is this ritual uncleanness, clean and unclean, it's not right or wrong in itself, but it's a symbol of moral, of being right or wrong. It's a symbol of sin or holiness. Just like being registered to vote might be a symbol of how respectable I am or how established in the community I am. It doesn't necessarily mean it, but it points to it. And so skin diseases which can make me richly unclean, are a symbol of sin. And I'm unclean if I've got a skin disease that's more than skin deep. And leprosy is perhaps the best or the most, one of the most powerful, one of the most evocative images of sin. If, if you've got leprosy, which the rest of chapter 13 goes on to talk about, just like sin, it kind of breaks out imperceptibly, um, just around your extremities. But what's going on inside is your body is actually rotting. Your body is decaying and dying from the inside, and eventually that's shown in the externals. And so a leper who was richly unclean because they've got this, this rot in them from the inside would have to live outside the camp because they're richly unclean. They can't be in the presence of God. Uh, it was an awful life. And so we come to chapter 14, which is what do we do about it? Because in the ancient world, nobody could cure leprosy. So if you, as soon as you got this infectious skin disease, you were banished for life. There was no way out unless God heals them. And the wonderful picture of chapter 14 is that even though doctors couldn't heal leprosy, God clearly would heal people from this. And in chapter 14, we have the regulations for how someone who had leprosy and was outside the camp in this picture of sin and death, living away from the people of God, outside God's presence, their body rotting, wearing grave clothes, could be brought back in to life, to the people of God, to where God's presence was, to be brought back in. And see what happens in chapter 14 for that to happen. The Lord said to Moses, these are the regulations for any diseased person at the time of their ceremonial cleansing when they are brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine them. The priest goes outside the camp. The representative of the people, the only one who can stand before God, he goes outside to the place of death and decay to where the leper is. And then as we read through chapter 14, you'll notice the priest does everything. The leper is completely passive in this. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine them. If they have been healed of their defining skin disease, if God's healed them, the priest shall order that two live clean birds and some cedarwood, scarlet yarn and hyssop be brought for the person to be cleansed. So we're going to then enact a picture to help them understand what's going on. And the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. So we fill a pot with a bird's blood. 
And he is then to take the live bird and dip it into the blood of the bird that was killed over the water. He baptizes a live bird in the blood of the dead bird. And the picture is that the live bird is covered in the death of the other one. It's washed clean. One bird dies that the other one might live. One bird takes the uncleanness that the other one might be pure. And then the priest covers the leper in verse 7. He sprinkles the one to be cleansed seven times with the blood of the bird that is dead. Just as one live bird is baptized in the blood and then released to live free, so the leper's covered in the blood to to symbolize that he's been brought from death to life. He's been washed clean. He's been purified by the sacrifice so he can come into the camp. And then what happens? He releases the live bird in the open field. Verse 8. The person to be cleansed must wash their clothes, shave off all their hair and bathe with water. Then they'll be ceremonially clean. After this, they must come into the camp, but they must stay outside their tent for seven days. On the seventh day, they shave off all their hair, they wash their clothes, they bathe themselves with water and they will be clean. And then on the eighth day, they come and they offer sacrifice. So what's happening? They're shaved and they're washed and they come into the camp like a newborn baby. All their clothes burnt, new clothes, no hair, completely washed, coming into the world. It's a rebirth, that's the picture. And it happens on the eighth day. It's always going to be the eighth day, because what happens on the eighth day? The eighth day, God makes the world in seven days. The eighth day is the day of recreation. New Israelite babies were were circumcised on the eighth day. They were reborn into the people of Israel. Jesus, when he appears to the disciples after his resurrection, appears on the first day of the week, the eighth day. It's the day of rebirth. And so this leper who's been healed of this skin disease that symbolizes sin has been baptized in the blood of another, has been reborn through water and shaving, is, comes as a newborn on the eighth day, and they offer for him every sacrifice in the book. So read in verse 12, they offer a guilt offering for him. Um, then in verse 19, they offer a sin offering for him. Um, and then they offer a burnt offering for him, and I've lost the verse. Um, um, and then ultimately he comes and he can offer his fellowship offering they offer every offering in the book for him through the course of chapter 14 purifying him of his sin so that he's then able to offer his fellowship offering of free will it's not commanded just to celebrate in the presence of the Lord who's healed him who's baptized him in the blood of another brought him to rebirth on the eighth day so he can enjoy fellowship with the Lord. And finally, he's anointed with oil, which symbolizes gladness, joy, the spirit, celebration. That's the picture of clean and unclean we're given in Leviticus 11 to 15, that the things which symbolize sin can be washed clean by all of these pictures. And it is, it, again, it puts the image in the culture that we, sounds very familiar to us, doesn't it? The blood of one, we're baptized in the blood and we're brought to new life through it, reborn into new birth, filled with, anointed with oil, the oil of the spirit, the oil of gladness, and entering into fellowship with God. It's a picture of salvation. And in it, the priest does everything. The leper is cleansed and brought to new life. And it always reminds this wonderful story in Mark chapter one, um, where Jesus comes and Jesus touches a leper. And what would happen if you touch a leper is I move instantly to the unclean part of the spectrum because the leper is associated with death. He's outside the camp. But Jesus touches a leper and he says, be clean. Jesus is so holy. He is holiness in and of himself that when he touches the leper, he's not made unclean. The leper is made clean just by that touch. 
unheard of. And then he sends the leper in Mark chapter 1 to the priests, and he says, show yourselves to the priests as a testimony to them. It's a testimony to the fact that the one who fulfills Leviticus 14 has come. The priest who declares clean, who makes clean, and who brings the leper and makes him whole has come. And notice that the leper being made clean has nothing to do with anything he does. And when the leper who's clean is in the camp, whether he feels clean or not is beside the point. He has been declared clean by the priest. The whole thing, the whole clean, unclean, holy spectrum, it's meant to be a picture of sin and a picture of salvation. That when we then see it fulfilled in Jesus, the Israelites go, I get it. What, what was external as a picture in the culture is made true in my life when Jesus comes. Clean and unclean. Okay, chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. And this is the high point. This is the best bit of the whole of the book of Leviticus. This is the bit the whole of the rest of the book is pointing to. Because on this day and on this day only, the holiest representative of the people would enter the holiest place in the tabernacle and make the holiest atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. Um, and it's where we get the phrase scapegoat. Um, so if we read Leviticus 16, verses 21 to 22, what happens is the high priest lays both his hands on the head of a live goat. So he's identifying with the goat. And he confesses over it the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and he puts them on the goat's head. And then he sends the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat carries on itself all their sins to a remote place. So it's a symbol. Again, it's just a picture. It's not like the goat's actually taking the sin away. But the goat is a symbol of how the sin of the people is taken away by the atonement that is made on this day. So the people are clean. And to understand what happens then on the Day of Atonement, we've got to understand the image that's going on in Leviticus. Um, and it's the image of graded holiness. So, so what, what's going on is the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, um, in Exodus 25, when Moses is told to make the tabernacle, God says, have them make me a sanctuary, a holy place, so that I may dwell among them in accordance with all that I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle or dwelling place and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. And the idea is, God, where does God dwell? Where's God? He's in heaven. Obvious, right? God, God's in his dwelling place in heaven. And in heaven, there is a pattern, there's a reality, God's actual dwelling place. And God shows Moses what it looks like. And he says, I want you to make a copy of this on earth. And I'm going to manifest and make known my presence there. And they call it the tabernacle. So the point is, it's, the tabernacle is the place where heaven meets earth. It will become the temple. It's the place where it's the replica of God's dwelling place brought down to earth so that on earth people can enter heaven. It's the place where heaven and earth are going to meet. That's the idea. And so what we see is in the tabernacle, there are lots of, there are, in every dimension, there's kind of a movement from earth to heaven. So Jesus says, in I'm sorry, God says in Leviticus 16, I appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. In the holiest bit of the tabernacle, then you've got the Ark of the Covenant and above it, God dwells. Because it's that same picture of heaven and earth meeting above the Ark of the Covenant. Perhaps the biggest picture, though, is um, horizontal. And what it is, is as you come closer and further and further into the tabernacle, you get closer and closer to the holy bit. Um, so on the right-hand side, as you look at the screen, you've got the entrance to the tabernacle. And you can only come to there if... And, and so anybody can come to the, to the entrance. But as you get further and further and further in, you come into the presence of heaven on earth. It's where God's putting his holiness. As you move along closer in, you get nearer and nearer the Lord. 
Um, and this is exactly what you see if you go today to a Catholic church or an Orthodox church. Anybody can come in from the doors over at that end, and then the congregation can come here, and then you'll maybe get the priests here, and then you've got the big curtain and the rood screen that only the priests can go through at particular points because the holy bit is over there where the altar is. It's trying to be a picture of getting closer to God's presence. Um, and so, depending, so anybody can come to the tabernacle. If you're clean, if, you've been, if, you're not, if you haven't touched a dead body or anything like that, you can come to the entrance of the tent itself, to the altar, to offer your sacrifice. But to go into the tent, you've got to be holy. And the holiest bit of all is behind the curtain. And so priests can come into the tent, but only the high priest, only the high priest can come into the center. And only the high priest once a year can come into the holy of holy places where the Ark of the Covenant is. It's a picture of being right next to the presence of God, in the heart of the blazing sun. You've got to be completely purified or you'll be burnt up. And you know how they, they used to tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest when he would go into the Holy of Holies. So that if he died when he was in there, they could pull him out because nobody would want to go in to get him. This is what's happening on the Day of Atonement. The high priest goes into the holiest bit of all, right to the heart of God's presence, and he offers a sacrifice so that the people might be clean. It's the, the high point of the whole of the Israelite year because they know they're forgiven and God has accepted the sacrifice. And again, it's a picture of what's going on in the heavenly reality. Hebrews chapter 9. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say is not a part of this creation. Not just the symbol on earth, but actual reality in the heavens, God's presence. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. They don't do anything. He entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so they're outwardly clean. It only works in symbol. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? That's the day of atonement. It's the moment where the where the holiest representative of Israel comes into the holiest place and makes the deepest atonement that the people might know God. Um, and the third, so we've got that vertically, God appears over the Ark of the Covenant. We've got it horizontally, as you come further and further in, you get holier and holier. Even the layout of the Israelite camp is set up this way. So you've got the tabernacle in the center of the camp, and then you've got the Levites camping around the edges of the camp, and then you've got the other tribes that aren't so holy camping around the edges of those, and then outside the camp are the unclean, the lepers who aren't yet healed. And the whole point is, the closer you get to God, the more holy and purified you've got to be. So Leviticus 17 to 27, we call it the holiness code. You could call it holiness for dummies. This is not how to become holy. This is now a description of what a holy people would look like. This is um, the actions that holy people will do. Um, and so the emphasis shifts from ritual holiness to moral holiness. In other words, this isn't about ritual states anymore, clean or unclean. It's not about purifying activities. This is about what is actually good to do in and of itself. What's sinful to do? What's good to do? How should we live? And so you can see the breakdown there. Chapter 17, we've got laws about blood because blood represents life. Um, chapter 18, laws about sex. 
Chapter 19, it's called Miscellaneous Laws. I love that heading. They kind of looked at it and they thought, how are we going to categorize these? Just about everything. Um, Chapter 20, more laws about idols and more laws about sex. Chapters 21 to 22, laws about what the priests should do. Chapters 23 to 25, laws about festivals and celebrations. Chapter 26, warnings about obedience. And then chapter 27, laws about vows. So it's just a load of laws that's saying, this is what holy people do. This is what's good to do. And what the holiness code teaches us it teaches us what God is like, it shows us what his character is, what he values, what's important to him. And it shows us how God's people should live. So they show us in chapter 19, verse 3, that holiness looks like prioritizing your family and resting. Uh, 1910, holiness looks like generosity. Uh, 1911, holiness looks like truth. 20, 1 to 9, holiness looks like serving God first. Uh, 20, 10 to 21, holiness looks like sexual purity and so on. It keeps going. It's a description of holiness. But it can't make you holy. The point of the holiness laws is not that we do these to enter God's presence. We enter God's presence by the sacrifice of another. These are, if you like, it's the recipe for holiness, but it's not the actual cake. You only get that through the, through the washing clean by blood. And the That's important because you can't enter a loving relationship just by doing stuff. Love comes from the heart. It's a choice, but it's about where our hearts are, not just our external actions. Um, And so often we forget this, and we look at the laws and the things God tells us to do, even good ones, love your neighbor as yourself, and we judge our relationship with God based on how well we're keeping the laws. But the point of Leviticus is that we're brought into God's presence by the sacrifice by the priests, by the declaring of us, by being declared clean, by the one that God has appointed, by the atonement. And as a result, we'll live holy lives. It's even here in the structure of the book. And to gain this kind of holiness, we need rebirth. It's like the picture of the leper being cleansed in Leviticus 14. Um, And so now a word on how these laws apply today. The first half more ritual, the second half more moral. Um, both of them are fulfilled in Jesus. And so the, the Old Testament, it means the Old Covenant or the Old Deal. It's the same word, Testament, Covenant, Deal. It's the way of relating to God. And we're now in a New Covenant, a New Testament, a New Deal. We relate to God in a different way. So none of the stuff in Leviticus do we have to do because all of the ritual law is pointing towards Jesus. They offered sacrifices. We have Jesus, the greatest sacrifice. They had priests go before them. We have Jesus, the great high priest. They had someone to declare them clean. Jesus has declared us clean once and for all. They had a high priest to go in on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement has happened 2,000 years ago and once and for all. So the ritual law is obsolete. That's why we no longer kill sheep at the front of church. It's why, we don't, um, why we're allowed to eat lobster or bacon. It's all of the ritual laws don't obtain anymore. They've been fulfilled in Jesus perfectly. Um, and the same thing is true at one level of the moral law. It's commandments for people in the old covenant, so we don't have to do it anymore. Except that in the new covenant, because God's values are the same and God's character doesn't change, Jesus and, the, and his disciples restate and reformulate all of the moral law so that it continues today. It's kind of like light refract, refracted through a prism. And the light coming in from the Old Testament, it goes through the prism of Jesus. It comes out looking slightly different. But the same values are there the whole way through. So Jesus restates the whole of the moral law, all of the commands in Leviticus 17 to 27. And we still do them. 
just not in the exact way that they're stated in Leviticus, in the way that Jesus has restated them for us. So, for example, Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus says, this is the second greatest commandment, love your neighbour as yourself. Leviticus gives us two chapters of laws about who you can have sex with and who you can't have sex with. Jesus just says, avoid sexual immorality. It's defined here, defined in Leviticus, what does sexual immorality look like? Well, all the things that it says there. Jesus just says, do that. Live sexually pure lives. Um, Sab- the, the Old Testament is full of festivals and Sabbaths. It says, observe this festival, observe this festival, observe this festival. We don't observe the same festivals anymore as the Jews did in the Old Testament because we're not under the same law. We're not in the Old Covenant. But we are told to observe a Sabbath and to honour God on the seventh day. And so we do. We observe a Sabbath rest of some kind in whatever way is appropriate because we're, it's the same values but transmuted, reformed by Jesus. Um, we see that in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, I haven't come to abolish the law but to fulfil it. So it's going to continue but it's going to look differently. Or in Matthew 22, where he says, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second like it, love your neighbour as yourself. So the moral law continues in a reformed way through Jesus, which is why we still keep the same kind of um, relational ethics as we see in Leviticus 17 to 27. But the ritual law is fulfilled in Jesus. So in Mark 7, Jesus says, all foods are clean. We don't need to observe the ritual law anymore. Um, And one case study from the holiness code, from the moral laws until before we finish. Let us look at the jubilee in Leviticus 25. So the year of jubilee happens every 50th year. And it's a declaration that God is the ultimate owner of the land and all material wealth and goods. And so we should treat the material world accordingly. So Leviticus 25 and verse 8. Count seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then sound the trumpet everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year. So every 50 years, what would happen is they'd proclaim a year of jubilee and all of the inequalities in society would be redressed. The poor would be given their land back. Those in debt would have their debts released. People would return home. It's God's way of ensuring that Israelite society would be equal and not um, not ruined by the inequality that we see in our society today. It's a utopian picture. It's wonderful. But as with all of Leviticus, it's not just wonderful at the surface level. It's a good thing. The Israelites never did this. They never did a year of jubilee as it's meant to be done, as it's told in Leviticus 25. It was too radical for them. The idea of giving property back, of letting the poor return to their ancestral homes, they never did it. Releasing slaves, they never did it. Now and then they did bits of it. In Ezra, which we're preaching for on Sunday evenings at the moment, they do finally release the slaves. They kind of, they release them, then they try and take them back, then they have to release them again. But they do ultimately do it. But they never quite match up to the perfect picture God gives. But as with everything, the year of Jubilee is also significant of something so much more because the, this is the beauty of the fact that the scripture is, there's dual authorship in scripture. The human author who wrote this only knew the surface meaning. But God who inspired him, God knew exactly what was to come when Jesus would come a few thousand years later. God knew exactly how the picture, the outline that he was drawing in Leviticus would be filled in by his son a thousand years after it being written. So when we now read it, knowing what, would ha- knowing what was to come, we get a glimpse of what was in God's mind when he inspired a human to write this down 3,000 years ago. 
that the human author would never have known. And the key is seeing what, on what day the year of Jubilee starts. Verse 9, it happens on Yom Kippur. It happens on the Day of Atonement. And so remember what's happening in the tabernacle. On this day, the great high priest, the representative of the people, is going through the curtain to where God is. And then picture the great high priest, the high priest coming back from the curtain, back to where he's visible to the people, the priest returning from God's presence to the Israelites. And the trumpet sounds, and the trumpets are sounded across the whole land because the high priest is back. Atonement's been made. It's the year of Jubilee. And what that's going to mean in um, verse 10 and 11, it means liberty, it means return home, it means rest, it means celebration. But do you catch the, um, the resonance with New Testament eyes? As the trumpet sounds. As the trumpet sounds and the high priest returns from the presence of God to his people, proclaiming Jubilee, proclaiming rest, proclaiming freedom. I have no doubt that when God inspired a human to write this, he already had a twinkle in his eyes. He pictured the second coming, which he can see right now, even though we can't yet. On the day that the trumpet resounds and the king, the priest, returns from God's presence in heaven, comes back through the curtain to bring his kingdom perfectly, to bring eternal rest, perfect liberty, total equality, to bring and restore to this earth how it should have been back in Eden before human sin ruined it all. The Jubilee gives us a picture of Jesus' return, an end to all debt and slavery, when the priest returns from interceding for his people. And so as we bring it together, Leviticus is all about holiness. It's about how a holy God can live with an unholy people and how we, even though we're sinful and broken and weak, can come into the presence of a good God and enjoy his company, eat a fellowship offering with him, celebrate the fact that we get to be known by our creator even though we don't deserve it and the first half of Leviticus gives us picture after picture of how we can be made clean and the answer is never anything that we do intrinsically in ourselves but what is done for us by a sacrifice by one whose blood is shed for us or flour because it's not actually about the blood of the animal by someone who can go before us into the holy place to make atonement on our behalf because we can't do it we need a go-between and it's all a picture of what Jesus would do, the great sacrifice in his death on the cross, the great high priest who is even now interceding for us at the Father's right hand. The only one who perfectly fulfilled all of the holiness laws in the second half of the book. The only one who perfectly lived the life that reflects what God is like. And the one who one day will come back to proclaim a year of jubilee for his people forever. Leviticus is a school of the gospel in Israelite culture that prepared God's people for the coming of the Messiah so that when he came, they might recognize him and know what he was about. And so it speaks to us too, because when we look to God, we can know with certainty that we're accepted. We can know with certainty that we can come into his presence, that he is always available to us, that nothing separates us from his love because the sacrifice has been prayed and the priest is interceding for us at the right hand even now once and for all. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for your son, Jesus, our great sacrifice, our great high priest, the holy one who in turn makes us holy. And we thank you, Lord, that in your wisdom, you prepared your people Israel for the coming of the Messiah by teaching them that sin has a price, that sin must be washed away by blood, 
that that we need someone to go and intercede on our behalf by teaching them of your character and by showing them of the need for forgiveness. And we thank you, Lord, that you gave that to us in your word so that now, having seen what you've done in your son, we can recognize it and marvel at your wisdom and your love and your grace to us. Help us, we pray, as we go home tonight to look up and know the joy of relating to you as our good father, not because of anything we've done, but all because of what you have done. In Jesus' name, amen.